All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I am again here in the borough of Queens uh, in New York City. It is the sixth day of December 2022. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. That's a company. That's a, a newsletter, a weekly newsletter and a monthly letter that's focused primarily on junior gold and silver exploration stocks, uh, as well as market commentary that I provide there as well. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to sign up for that letter. And let you let me remind you that um, gold shares generally usually do better during recessions and depressions. Uh, that may come as a surprise to many of you, but they do. And gold itself is negatively or at least has a very low correlation with the equity market with the bond markets too in some cases uh, and so when uh, we're in a recession a lot of times the cost of getting gold and silver out of the ground declines relative to the cost or to the price of the metal that's being mined and so the profit margins uh, generally are stronger during bad times in the economy so just keep that in mind as uh, we head into 2023 where most people believe, most most financial analysts anyway, believe uh, we're likely to have a, a recession of some of some magnitude. How deep it will be remains to be seen. Uh, but with regard to the mining companies, the 1930s were very, very good to gold mining companies. As uh, in 2000, 2008, 2009, that crisis, financial crisis, was also a time when gold miners did exceptionally well. We also like to uh, plug Chen Lin's, Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? ChenPicks.com is a place to go for that, especially if you're interested in the biotechs and the mining sector as well. And uh, also Michael Oliver, uh, Oliver MSA. Michael will be with me to talk about his latest take on the markets after our first commercial break. He'll be with me. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I'd like to invite you to keep your questions and comments, sending them along. Um, whenever you have any I, any thoughts about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. As I noted a couple of weeks ago, there will be some changes in this show in the near future. And to keep up with those changes as they take place, be sure to request to be put on our mailing list at questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. You can go to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com to request to be put on our mailing list. And uh, you can also track uh, the progress that we're making and uh, the changes that will be t- taking place at jtaylormedia.com. It's my website, jtaylor, J-A-Y Taylor, media.com, where you will also be kept abreast. And I will, of course, be uh, doing some 
tweeting uh, on Twitter as the time nears. Uh, I do anyway on a regular basis, but as the time nears uh, for some changes, I will let you know there as well. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today, Irving Resources, Noble Resources, Gold Bull Resources, El Oro Resources, and Timberline Resources. I've titled today's show, America's Past and America's Future. Jeff Dyson and Michael Oliver returned this week. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that those were the words of the Declaration of Independence as penned by America's founding fathers back in July 4, 1776. Holding a common belief that each individual is a unique person created by God and having that in common was a unifying idea that helped drive the colonists to risk their lives to overthrow the tyrannical King of England, King George III. Having witnessed firsthand the tyranny of King George, the founders, um, the American founders understood that governments themselves can become the biggest threat to take away our God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that was part of the reason for the Second Amendment being written into the Constitution. And so our founders set in place not a democracy, no, not a democracy, which if unchecked becomes a mobocracy, but they set in place a democratic republic comprised of three branches of government, not one dictatorship, but three branches of government to guard each other each other branch from becoming so powerful that it would deny citizens their God-given rights, most basic of which are the rights of free speech, religion and self-defense, as well as the right of free association to own property and many other rights, which until recently had not been challenged, at least not significantly challenged in America. But now there is a growing chorus of people who seek to give power to a ruling class that are threatening to remove those rights that we have taken for granted for so much time over the years. In addition to the three equal branches of government, some of the other safeguards against tyranny by the majority to protect the life and liberty of a minority that were given to us by our founding fathers. We have an electoral college, vote for president and vice president. We have two senators from each state, no matter the population of those states. And we have representative government based on the population. The, father, the founding fathers also understood that sound money and free markets are essential to domestic peace and economic prosperity. Well, now, 247 years later, a growing number of Americans seem to have been taught to think that a powerful executive branch and even more powerful administrative state is preferable because, well, dictators can get things done more efficiently. Uh, a, a growing number of Americans appear not to understand or appreciate the link between the freedom willed to us by our founding fathers and economic prosperity that inevitably follows. Well, Jeff Deist, who worked as Ron Paul's chief of staff when Dr. Paul was in Congress and when he was running for president, will be with me in the second half of today's show to discuss how America has changed from the freest country in the world towards, a, in a very rapid uh, pace, moving uh, back towards a similar kind of a tyranny that our revolution, uh, that our founding fathers revolted against back in 1776. Well, hopefully Jeff will have some advice, not only in explaining the past and looking to the future, but how we might best navigate our lives 
uh, in the future, uh, depending on how things are, are going to go. According to Jeff, we'll have to see what he has to think has to say about that. I think Jeff and the Mises Institute is doing what they can in their way uh, to try to uh, to help uh, retain our freedoms, our liberties, the right to. Uh, property, the right to be free to uh, conduct ourselves in business, to worship, and all the rights that I just talked about. Uh, the Mises Institute is certainly doing what it can, and so we'll hear what Jeff has to say about that. Um, we do have to go to break now, but Michael Oliver will be with me when we come back, and I know you're going to want to hear what Michael has to say uh, in a day on a day when the markets are down pretty hard. I'm looking at the NASDAQ is down over 2%. Um, the uh, S&P down 1.7% and the Dow is down 1.3%. Uh, bond markets are a little bit stronger, I think. I think the uh, interest rates were down a schmidgen earlier today. Uh, but for sure, uh, these are uh, very, very, um, I think, very uncertain times in the markets and politically and in many other ways. Uh, Michael will have a lot to say about all of that when we come back, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Michael Oliver with me, uh, as we do every other week. It's always a pleasure to have him with us, and uh, you should all, by this time, know that the place to go to to sign up for Michael's letter, Momentum and Structural Analysis, uh, is it's an excellent letter that really keeps you up to date on the markets, uh, is OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Thanks for being with us again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's really good to be back, and I understand that you uh, you've just recently moved into a new abode somewhere um, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, and um, I'm very envious of you. I must say, as I, I hear you talk <laughs> about the place, looking out the window at the Rockies, wow! Um, I'm I'm here in New York City, looking at uh, other brick walls, you know. So um, anyway, well, uh, <laughs> sometimes that can be a good vista too, you know, looking at the city. Okay, yeah, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. 
Well, anyway, Michael, um, you know, we're talking about America's past and its future. And, you know, I guess there have been many times in the past when people in America might have thought, man, things don't look very good. I mean, it is a Great Depression and World War II. Uh, you know, we've had other times, the Civil War, of course, and, and other times when, in our history when things look pretty bleak. Uh, so we want to try to put it in perspective if we can. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's mostly the topic of today. And I know that what people need to realize is that you're more than just a technical analyst. We have you uh, basically talking about technical things that you see, your models, which have worked extremely well. Uh, we have you on the show. We love to have you here and are you know, one of our most popular guests because people really, uh, really believe what you say and they are, you know, you have credibility. Uh, but people should also know that you, you know, do a lot of pretty deep thinking as well. You've written a book called The New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism, and you talk in there about a lot about what what makes for you know for a good life for people and um, I, I just wanted to quote something from Ayn Rand that you have on page 38 of your book if you would allow me to Michael and then I'd like to get your response yeah. to it um, this is on page 38 of Michael Oliver's book the new libertarianism anarcho-capitalism and he quotes Ayn Rand as saying a society that robs an individual of the product of his effort or enslaves him or attempts to limit the freedom of his mind or compels him to act against his own rational judgment, a society that sets up a conflict between its, between its edicts and the requirement of man's nature is not strictly speaking a society, but a mob held together by institutional gang rule." End of quote. Well, now I'm thinking, Michael, during, the, during COVID, for example, some of America's highest ranking doctors were not allowed to speak and to give their opinion about the policies that were being implemented. They were told to shut up and they were shut off of the major media. They weren't allowed to talk. Uh, one of our most basic rights, the First Amendment uh, right to speak and government, we're learning now, worked along with some of these big uh, social media and dictated to those social media that they had to cut off people that disagreed with the policies of the administration. I mean, this doesn't sound like America to me, but it sounds exactly like the kind of thing Ayn Rand was warning about here in, in that little paragraph that I just read. What are your thoughts about, from a social point of view, Michael, and then I will get into the, the regular mm -hmm. things that you and I talk about, the markets and so forth, but what are your thoughts? Because I know, as I say, you're much more than just a a technical analyst. Uh, I don't mean just a technical well, analyst because you're yeah. you're very good at that, obviously. But what are your thoughts? Okay. Well, in the early days of what we call the libertarian movement now, and most people, if you ask them what the libertarian means, it means generally free markets. They understand that um, and so forth. And it started in the early 70s, and I was involved, fortunately, in the early days of its formation. There were probably 50 or 100 of us that were really active, you know, uh, in one way or another. I used to put out a nationwide newspaper uh, mm -hmm. called the New Banner, New Banner, and it was a libertarian objectivist newspaper. Anyway, uh, and yes, I did. I wrote that book around that time, so I'm talking 50 years ago. Um, the trend of the country has always been, especially in let's say some 1900s onward, okay, mm -hmm. toward more and more statism, mm -hmm. regardless of which party was in power. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true that, let's say, under Reagan, perhaps, it slowed a bit. Mm-hmm. But basically, I have an image in my mind, conjured this up, a totem pole, like an Indian totem mm-hmm. pole, with two snakes mm-hmm. writhed around it, mm-hmm. crawling up the totem pole. One is GOP, <laughs> one is them, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet, regardless of the alternating control they have over Congress, over the presidency, you know, it alternates every decade or two, you know, that type of thing, um, the state has grown. Mm-hmm. In, its, in, in the things it thinks it has the right to control and therefore does impose controls over, uh, way, way apart from anything the founding fathers would ever have conceived of in mm-hmm. terms of what government does. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, And it, this has happened regardless of those two parties. Mm-hmm. It, it really hasn't stopped. The, the government has grown okay, to the point where they, they in early 1900s, they created the Fed. Which uh, what does what? It prices money. <laughs> yeah. It's like having a having a federal government board to price the price of uh, hamburger meat. Yeah. Okay. As if somebody from above can determine supply demand for a given commodity, in this case a money unit, which is our medium of exchange between people who don't even know each other. It's a, it's mm-hmm. it's got to be a common bound, you know, bond. But the government controls it, and at whim they take it up, they take it down, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, the state has grown in size, I'm talking the federal government, uh, constantly over the decades, regardless, of, even under Trump. I mean, the budget went through the roof. He spent, had military spending like we've not seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. He wanted the Fed to print money. He wanted Fed to create rates at zero or lower to compete with the Europeans. So, I mean, I couldn't, as a libertarian, I cannot quite discern a difference. In fact, there's times when I look at the Democrat Party and maybe one or two issues where I agree with them, mm-hmm. and most GOP wouldn't. Let's say abortion, for example. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, on the Republican side, I see many uh, positions they take that I agree with, but others that totally contradict that. In other words, there's no intellectual integrity on the part of many of those who claim to be limited government advocates. Mm-hmm. Because they ultimately mm-hmm. get behind, the, the party they get behind is the GOP, and yet it still has been part of the growth of the state. Okay. It creates problems. It creates errors. Whereas if you make an error as a businessman, you make a product that people don't really want and you think they do, and you commit money mm-hmm. to it, and you find out, oh, they don't want it. You go bankrupt, okay? So you're, right. you're in trouble. Not you society. pay the price. Yeah, you paid the price. It was your risk. But when government comes in and takes over a given concept, it says, this is something we have to pursue. If they make an error on that, then it's an error that everyone is stuck in, is part of. It's not just an error on the part of uh, a bad thought process by this company or this person. Instead, it's a macro error, mm-hmm. and it's coerced on the back of everybody. And I, I'm not talking just Democrats, it's Republicans, too. No, it, it, sure. it superimposed these concepts that everybody must get behind. Why? Because with the majority voted for it. Well, you know, Hitler sort of got elected, you know, (laughs) parliamentary system. Okay, Uh, so democracy is can be, in fact, mob rule. Yes, exactly. Maybe uh, 50 some odd people on a given block want something done and 49 don't. And therefore, Mm -hmm. the 50 control what the other 49 do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In effect, that's mobocracy. So Mm -hmm. I think this is breaking down. Mm-hmm. And I think that fortunately, because of the Fed, they created a, a market, a paper asset bubble from 2008, 
lows to 2021 highs that exhibited itself in mostly paper assets, so muni bonds, high-yield corporate debt, stock market especially, U.S. stock market in particular. When that comes undone, meaning when the errors that were committed based upon false concepts of the value of money, the availability of money, and people who make decisions based on that, long-term investment or family planning decisions, and suddenly that changes because the Fed realizes, oh, you know, we got to do this. So they're playing mm-hmm. their game of control one way or control the other instead of letting the market forces determine, you know. You have a crisis like you've never seen, and it's not being discussed today. Most mm-hmm. people are looking at the day-to-day metrics, the month-to-month metrics. They don't realize that there was a bubble of a dozen-year size that we've never seen before in the U.S. stock market. Mm-hmm. The errors un- underlying that bubble are so huge and so dispersed and, and miscellaneous, you can't even define them all. You know, they're, they're both individual, corporate, government, and so forth. When they come undone, it's like a dam bursting. Mm-hmm. The Fed has pierced the bubble. The bubble is broken. Technically, we defined it in January and February based on NASDAQ 100 S&P and said, that's it. It's over. We're going into a massive bear market. But it's a different bear market than any we've ever seen because what came before it is the biggest bubble we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And this will not be limited to stock prices. It will be people will feel it in the street. Now, this will have political repercussions. And I don't mean pro-Democrat, pro-Republican. It could fracture the entire system. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah. Trump may play a po- positive role in that, uh, in that if he doesn't get think – the, think about these ramifications. Mm-hmm. Trump wants to get the Republican nomination. Let's say he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's going to simply say, oh, I think I'll retire and enjoy the rest of my life? Or he's going to say, no, I'm a man of history. I'm going to continue and therefore create a third party. Yeah, well, that's... Let's call it America Again Party, whatever. Uh-huh. His, a lot of his hardcore followers are not Orthodox Republicans. That's they right. They only came on board recently because of him. If you slice them out of the Republican Party in the next 2024 election, because Trump mm-hmm. didn't get the nomination, mm-hmm. and they say, I'm not going to vote for the other GOP folks, I'm not in it for the GOP, I'm in it for Trump... They're right. not going to be there. And if they constitute 15, 20, 25 percent of what the current GOP is, it will be a disaster for the GOP. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or yeah. if he gets the nomination, think of the consequences there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like there's to think no about There's no outcome it. here politically. There, there's no. no outcome politically that will not accommodate the implosion of the bubble as well. I'm 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 so afraid you're right about all of that. And then, of course, I think it's, Trump, it's Trump said something. Well, Trump said something yesterday, I think, about uh, where in certain cases the Constitution shouldn't be followed. I don't know if I'm exactly uh, no, I, paraphrasing. No, I generalized. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. the general general idea. Uh, well, uh, you know, and, and for sure, Michael, I think you'd agree that the Constitution has not been. And we've been going away from it. Uh, the, you know, you were talking about the mobocracy. Well, certainly the things that have been put in place to try to guard against the mobocracy have been you know, I mean, there's one party wants to get rid of the Supreme Court, for example. Well, there's one of the three legs of the stool that's knocked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there's mm-hmm. been a gradual erosion of our of those safeguards that are put in place. Uh, but I have to ask you, you know, why in the world do you think we know that communism, statism is a disaster? History shows it time and time and time again. Why do people keep opting for it? Why do the masses want to 
Well, yeah. I don't. I, it's hard to say, except that that's what they've been raised upon. And no. there's sometimes there's intellectuals out there uh, who realize there might be something else. And sometimes no. it takes a crisis for them to say, hey, you know, this isn't working. And no. I can easily see that occurring regarding the Fed. And because if anybody goes back and looks at the boom bust cycles mm-hmm. that have occurred under the Fed, starting in the 1920s yeah. even, Mm -hmm. where they pumped the money supply up a lot. And sure enough, you had a bubble then, not nearly the dimensions of ours. And in 29, it broke and wiped everybody out through 1932. Mm -hmm. And you didn't even come back to the highs again in the the Dow Industrials until 1950s. So there's times where economists will say, hey, you know, this hasn't been working. Broaden it a bit. There may be some people who think on on a political philosophical level that, hey, you know, this – mobocracy thing like uh, we got to have the mob that's in control as opposed to that other mob yeah yeah well you know i don't desire to control my neighbor's life exactly so you're a libertarian i'm not going to put a (laughs) i'm not going to put a bumper sticker on my car that says hey vote because i want to control your i I, I vote because i want to control your life yeah that'd be a great bumper sticker but i'm not going to do it (laughs) no no you wouldn't do it michael i know you very well No. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get on to a couple of the markets. Uh, then, then oh, okay. uh, you know, I yeah. think the equity markets. You said it's over. Basically, mm-hmm. how far down? What you, the S and P, which you watch very carefully, oh. and you put out something this morning. I know mm-hmm. talking about the Nasdaq. Uh, how mm-hmm. far down can these markets go from here? Because a lot of oh. people are sort of of the belief that this might be close to the bottom here. Yeah, well, I've heard a lot of that talk, but fortunately, even some of the major uh, broker-dealers like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs have come out recently and said, hey, you know, this December rally is not going to hold. Yeah. So mm-hmm. even though if they're three-quarters of the year behind where the MSA said, they're at least on target and they're giving out good advice, it's not going to hold. Uh, I suspect we're going to see a change in the debate that you hear about financials about, mm-hmm. are we going to have a soft landing? <laughs> Instead of discussing that, I suspect the next debate is going to be how hard is the hard landing going to be? They're going to skip right over the issue of the soft landing. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be <clears throat> triggered in part, coincidentally, not the causal factor, by the S&P and the, and the NASDAQ 100, which is the leader index, taking the next step down. There was all mm-hmm. this languishing around we've seen since June by the way, the, S- the NASDAQ 100 has had a very anemic rally since June. It's pathetic. Mm-hmm. The Dow had a big one, but the, the, the broad market, the leader index, the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500, have hardly had a, a, a muscle you know, showing rally. It was, it's very anemic for the NASDAQ in particular. Uh, the next leg down, the question is where might it go? And we've picked some levels, but frankly, we need to revise them. Mm-hmm. Uh, around 3,000 S&P, for example, Mm-hmm. And I think we had 8,000 on the NASDAQ 100. Uh, but ultimately, we're going deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it's going to last for decades, but it could last for a few years. In fact, most bear markets in the U.S., if you go back and look at them, they last at least a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's between X year and another year, and sure enough, there's two years in there. Uh, now, the, the issue then is the depth of it mm-hmm. and also the real-world consequences. And I suspect the real-world consequences will be very bad. Yeah, uh, and I'm looking for the sufficient divorce, and I already think it's occurring if you measure it properly, uh, between gold and the stock market, mm-hmm. between silver, gold, and et cetera, and the stock market. Uh, yes, yesterday both of them went down. Today the stock market went down again, big, and gold is mm-hmm. up. 
Not yeah. a lot, but it's up. Yeah, uh, uh, gold true. miners are up. You know, it's one of the few mining, uh, one of the few stock sectors that's up today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that will become clearer as we go through the next weeks and months, as the stock market goes lower, that the divorce will finally become more obvious to, to most people. And mm-hmm. that, that is, in fact, the place to be, because the yes. central banks will have to come in and print, print, print. Mm. Yeah. They have no other well, policy choice. Yeah, that would seem to be the handwriting on the wall, for sure, and uh, it's a matter of timing. What about then uh, the bond market? Because normally, uh, if you have a systemic change, if the whole system is about to change, I think you know the, you have to throw some of the old rules out. We would expect the bond market to get stronger. We'd see, expect to see money flowing into the bonds. You know, all the, the mm-hmm. question has always been, as you pointed out so often, we ex- you were bullish on bonds a lot of times, the you know long dated treasuries, and mm-hmm. you were right about that because money would come out of the market and would go into the bond market. Well, it hasn't worked this year. The bonds are mm-hmm. down. Gold is held up pretty well. It's been a much better safe haven than the than the treasuries, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But what about if we have this real cleansing of this massive decline in the equity markets? Do you expect, like Alistair McLeod, for example, is a bond bear going forward for the foreseeable mm-hmm. future? But what are your what's your take? Well, we've been bearish on bonds this time around for uh, this year. Okay, we hit a target level that we thought would be a bounce point for TLT, which is a long-term government bond ETF, and for the 30-year Treasuries. We hit our target. In fact, we went a little bit beyond our downside target. By by, by target, I don't mean the end target, but just an intermediate target. And sure enough, they generated a rally. And as you said, they're, they're, they're steady today, so people are plowing into that as opposed to the stock market. They're trying to treat it as an alternative, which mm-hmm. often it's been historically. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think that alternative is going to persist. I think the bonds will go lower. Rates will go higher. Uh, this is a technical assessment, but also fundamental, but there's a major technical assessment that the damage done in the recent bond drop is so serious to mm-hmm. treat this rally in bonds or dip in yields as temporary. Yeah. No. Well, I, I certainly think true. that it, 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 I mean, people will really be taken back when they look at their 401ks and their IRAs this year. Uh, and they, oh. you know, if they, they, oh my goodness, the, those 60 40 um, bond, you know, equity didn't bond work. splits, it, it <laughs> didn't work. Uh, and those people who held gold will be relatively well off as opposed to treasuries this year. It, it just seems to be maybe a major change taking place. Uh, I mm-hmm. guess we'll have to leave it go at that, Michael. We're out of time. Thank you so much for for your ideas, your thoughts. Always appreciated, especially today uh, when you expanded a little bit more. Uh, wonderful to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jay. All, Bye-bye. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Jeff Dice will be with me. Um, he's the president of the Mises Institute, and I know Jeff will have some things to say about these topics as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back to ask Jeff uh, to talk about America's past and its future. We'll be right back with Jeff Dice. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Jeff Dice with me. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, an educational organization dedicated to promoting Austrian economics, freedom, and peace. Jeff previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff uh, to Congressman Ron Paul. Jeff is also a tax attorney, having represented high net worth uh, individuals, partnerships, and corporations in a wide variety of tax matters. And his tax career includes a time at two different big four accounting firms specializing in tax issues arising from mergers and acquisitions for private equity firms. And um, I should mention just to follow Jeff and all that he's doing and what's taking place at the Mises Institute is simply Mises, that's M-I-S-I-S dot org. So I would uh, suggest uh, you folks bookmark that site and go there and, um, and, and learn about what is going on. Uh, at the Mises Institute. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Absolutely. You're welcome, Jay. Um, we titled today's show America's Past and Future. Um, and, you know, we, I guess I'd like to ask you a little bit about, you know, the past and, and our, our heritage, what has taken place, what our founding fathers willed for us, and then kind of look at where we are now, uh, 200 and, I don't know, 247 years or something like that later. Um, but before we get started, can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar with the Mises Institute why it exists and what it does? I know we've had you on before, but not often enough. And maybe you can just tell people briefly what the Mises Institute is all about. Oh, boy. Well, I hope what it's all about is educating people, lay people, for the mm-hmm. most part, about real economics. Because in our view, there's a huge hole in the economics profession, both the academic side of it, and the practicing side of it at places like the Fed, we think the profession is uh, not only not doing much good, it's doing a lot of active harm Mm -hmm. in the world. And if we sort of dial back and take a little bit higher 50,000 foot view of what economics is supposed to be, well, it's a social science and it's supposed to help us understand the world. It's supposed to help us create a wealthier and happier and healthier and more prosperous society, right? That's, That's the point. And we lose sight of that in all of our modeling and all of our details and all of our reporting of numbers and looking at CPI and BLS and unemployment yeah. and this and that, we lose sight of the big picture that economics is supposed to help us understand and thereby improve the world. I don't think it's doing that. So we, we exist as a resource for lay people to, to come and understand what, what, in my very biased opinion, is real economics. Real economics, uh, Austrian economics, uh, named uh, your Mises Institute, named after the great Austrian economist, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, maybe just share with our listeners a little bit the philosophy or, the, or what Austrian economics is. Well, it really represents a couple of competing strands 
which came out of the 1800s and into the 1900s. Uh, classical economics had some holes in it. It didn't particularly understand value. It didn't particularly understand money. It didn't particularly understand marginalism. And I'm sure most of your listeners will, will know what I mean by that. So uh, some various strands fought over uh, improving upon mm-hmm. Adam Smith and the classical economists. And this, this took various forms. There was a German historical school which said, gee whiz, almost everything we know is just from history. And then there was a real positivist school that said, you know, everything has to be tested empirically, just like the physical sciences. Uh-huh. And then, of course, there was uh, Karl Marx came along. Uh, then, of course, later in the 1930s, John Maynard Keynes came along. So uh, the, the Austrian school uh, became uh, sort of uh, put off to the side relative to Keynes, who really, to, to be fair, uh, took almost all the oxygen out of the room in the 1930s. So ever since then, we've been fighting a battle to remind people that a healthy economy starts with production. You mm-hmm. have to have profits in order to ha- accumulate capital, in order to reinvest in CapEx in a business, in order to produce goods and services more efficiently, which is to say more cheaply, in order to make them available to more and more average people. Okay, we have we've swallowed this idea from Keynes and from others that Everything is about consumption. The way to uh, <laughs> prosperity is to stimulate people to want to go out and get more stuff. And we do that either through monetary policy or fiscal policy. But that's just erroneous. Uh, you know, more money and credit doesn't mean new goods and services come online. But what more money and credit does do is create dislocations and malinvestment in society. It also tends to benefit some certain people who are closest to that new money, we might say. So uh, the Austrian school is really an attempt to reassert reality. Again, I'm biased. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big believer that the Austrians are right. Um, it's an attempt to reassert reality and to get us back to a focus on what really makes for prosperity rather than this sort of juiced up uh, steroid era idea we have today. Yeah, for sure. Just print money and pump it into the system and stimulate the demand side and everything is going to be honky-dory. Never worry about uh, the supply side. I, I think. Um, well, you, you mentioned that it benefits some people. Is that maybe the reason why you said that Keynes took all the oxygen out of the out of the room uh, back in the 1930s? I would suggest that the oxygen is still largely out of the room now, given the fact that I think every single, virtually every single economist, and there must be more than 100 of them at the Federal Reserve, are all Keynesians, I believe. I mean, I don't suppose there's a chance that there's even one Austrian school economist there. Well, I suspect most of them would tell you that they don't have any ideological persuasion, and that's part and parcel of their education. In other words, they have been taught and, and, and strongly believe most of them don't know much about the history of economic thought. They don't really yeah. haven't really studied uh, the, the profession of economics in, in, in much depth. But I think they would tell you they are not ideological. They're just looking at the data. They're just uh-huh. responding to data. They would say data, data, data all day long, which is mm-hmm. in and of itself, of course, Basically, an ideology that says that the only way we can understand the world is through numbers uh, is through numbers and that, you know, theory can never guide us. Well, um, I think there's some some real (laughs) problems with that. So but but to be fair, I think your average Fed economist who probably went to some place like Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Stanford or Wharton would tell you, you know, look, I I'm not ideological. I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. Right. But the whole idea of, you know, the upward sloping supply curve and the downward sloping demand curve, uh, you know, 
or the other way around. Now I'm now I'm I'm even confused. But anyway, the idea that you know as you produce more, the prices will go down. You know, if you if you if you have more more money in your pockets, you're reserved with the demand. You know, the shifting of the curve and then along the curve. These are you know these are theories that are actually practical. It's the way people live their lives. Why why could Keynes not see the the need for the supply side of the economy as well as the demand side? What why was he blinded? Well, general theory is um, it's a tough book. It's it's mm-hmm. you got it's hard to grapple with. And and to be fair, I think a lot of Keynesians today actually advocate things which Keynes himself would not. In other words, he certainly saw limits on what government policy could do that I suspect a lot of modern economists don't see. In other words, they think we can basically just engineer prosperity using monetary or fiscal stimulus. I think a lot of them really believe that. I mean, at least within reason, they would say we're so far below capacity that we don't have to worry about that. We can just create unlimited stimulus at the federal, at the you know, at the fiscal side with the federal government or the monetary side with the Fed, because we don't even have to worry about inflation and these other things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Keynes was more circumspect than his uh, modern adherents. Yeah. But, but the idea that um, there is slack in markets, oftentimes the idea that there is market failure, mm-hmm. uh, both of those I would personally dispute, I think are, are you know, loom large in Keynesianism. And so the idea is that uh, government or central banks have to come along and, um, you know, save the patient when the patient's dying. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the general thrust of it. Yeah. And so the Federal Reserve goes in there and, and st- uh, you know, drives interest rates down by pumping money in the system. And so you have people investing in things that otherwise, if there was a true market rate, wouldn't be viable. And now we're seeing the repercussions of a lot of that, of course, uh, with with some of the cryptos. And every time the interest rates go up, all these uh, tech stocks tend to get, you know, the ones that aren't making any money anyway, tend to get slaughtered in the market because they're not viable businesses. And, and, you know, you can only see that when you have a true market rate of interest. So, I, you know, it's just, it's just hard for me to understand why people can't see what seems so obvious, uh, the malinvestment that you talked about, for example. But Jeff, th- this is economics, which is just part of America. You know, the, the whole idea of why why America was formed to start with, you know, could you talk a little bit about, you know, why people were willing to, you know, in the 1600s or whenever to cross the Atlantic, risk their lives to come over here was tough. It was nothing here. Uh, not. <laughs> Why did people come to America to start mm. with? And what were they looking for? Uh, you know, it seems to me, was it just the kind of um, monetary things that we're looking for? Or was there something more than that? Well, Jay, that's a tough question because there's the kindergarten Disney version of okay, the American well, founding, and then there's the real version of the American founding, and now there is this third version, which the left purports uh, to adhere to today, which is that everything about America from its very founding was terrible, racist, yeah. colonialist, um, mm-hmm. you know, genocidal, etc. So I'll I'll stick with the uh, somewhat balderized Rothbard version of history okay. conceived in <laughs> yeah. liberty was his big uh, five-volume history of the colonial period in the United States, which is what we can call America. And look, I I do think that there were uh, very positive and beneficial animating impulses behind the creation of this country. I do think that um, 
a lot of American colonials, not all, but I think a lot of them really did want to live more freely than they might otherwise under King George or, or someone else in Europe. And mm-hmm. I do think that uh, the idea of uh, the Declaration of Independence was a noble the the idea that really governments prior to that, whether they lived up to it or not, hadn't really attempted to recognize formally the sanctity of the individual. Uh-huh. I, I think the American Revolution was largely, not entirely, of course, because a lot of people got killed, a lot of people got hurt. Um, it was largely a salutary thing for those of us who are here today yeah. in the U.S. And so, you know, um, but but surely if the, if it was fought over anything, it was from the idea that the state or the king or the monarch would have omniscient and unlimited power in society. Uh-huh. In other words, the idea that we would have a truly constitutionally limited government and that we would come together in a very loose confederation of these United States, um, you know, anything that applies a subsidiarity principle and healthy degree of federalism in order to have, you know, sovereignty closer to home, I think is a good thing. So overall, I would say compared to what we have today, the American founding and the American Constitution were, uh, and certainly the American Declaration of Independence were very fine documents. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I support them in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that the power was supposed to be uh, from the bottom up, um, you know, the, the, the people that ran or the, the, the president, the, the legislatures were supposed to derive their power uh, from the will of the of the populace or from the people, right? And uh, that's a. I mean, was there any? Is there any in history any other nation that had this concept of power from the bottom up uh, well, that you can think I, of it? I mean, you can certainly find philosophical justification for a yeah. more libertarian worldview well prior to yeah. the founding period of the United States. You can find that all the way back in Lao Tzu and in 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 Asia, uh, but. But no, I think that was basically a a radical revolutionary concept at the time um, coming out of monarchical Europe and and particularly England. And so the idea that you could have bottom up uh, rule or power vested in people, I mean, that's pretty fraught that I mean, what you know, it is a radical idea, whether it can be maintained in practice. The answer has generally been no, because uh, average people you know, generally don't want to do the work involved mm-hmm. uh, to to guard against excesses right. uh, from government. So I would say it, it was a great idea. It's been uh, perhaps badly or improperly executed, but that's not the fault of the design of it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. What about? I mean, yeah. People don't understand. They don't under. They don't want to wear. I think it was Thomas Jefferson said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It means that people have to care and know. And initially, of course, uh, we had senators that were not were not uh, were, were not elected. They were appointed right. by the states, I guess, by the yes. by the governors or anyway, the states decided who their two two senators would be. But the idea that the sparsely populated states would also have two senators, uh, as many as New York and California would have. Was to protect. It was designed to protect the minorities or people that live in areas uh, that are less yes. densely populated, right? Yes. There's and people all, don't understand. Right. People don't understand that now. Well, there are there are several undemocratic or even anti-democratic mechanisms mm-hmm. in our constitutional framework. One you just mentioned: uh, two senators per state. Rhode Island, mm-hmm. California, both have two senators. Rhode Island's the size smaller than the 
most counties in Texas. Okay, <laughs> so uh, that's anti-democratic. The First Amendment is anti-democratic. It says regardless of you know how popular or unpopular your speech is, you have a right to it, even if 99.9% of Americans disagree with you. The Electoral College itself, winner take all by state, by uh, a mix of uh, Senate representation and then congressional representation. I mean, yes, that absolutely sways some power to the less populated states in terms of uh, each individual voter's uh, uh, power in that state. So, yeah, I mean, they're, the idea that we're, we're a democracy, you know, well, okay, but we're supposed to be a Republican. There's actually a constitutional Republican. There's actually some pretty serious differences in outcomes. So when you hear this political blather about it, yeah. you know, oh, we're a democracy or democracy's yeah. in trouble. Or whatever, that's, that you, you just have to view that in terms of, of current politics. That's just a battle for, for current political supremacy. That's not based on um, any sort of actual appeal to the mechanisms of the founding documents. I mean, that's all just complete trash on the part of our politicians. Right, and the three branches of government, of course, were meant to be equal in mm. power and to hold each other in check, right? So that the- oh boy. Uh, now we now we have at least <laughs> one, part, one party that wants to get rid of the Supreme Court and get rid of the judiciary, <laughs> essentially, right? And I'm not sure that both parties wouldn't do it if they if they thought they could gain power. I don't, I don't think one party is better than the other when well, it comes to, to you know, power mongering. But, um, you know, I mean, that's that's another case. And, um, uh, you know, what's what's democratic? Well, I don't know what your thoughts are. Uh, it seems to me, I mean, they want to get rid of that and, and add some states that might give the balance of power. It seems to me everything that's going on now is going against this idea of uh, of liberty for the individual. Yeah, I think that's true. I think almost everything you hear about the Supreme Court, for example, is just a cynical political play. Mm -hmm. If, if uh, Hillary Clinton had won in 2016 and appointed three new justices during her four years, I don't think we'd be seeing these constant attacks on the Supreme Court yeah. uh, from the progressive media at places like Slate or Salon or Jacobin, to put it mildly, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we all get this. This is all just transparent politics. And, and you look, Politics is natural. There's always a human tendency towards politicking, in the, whether that's in a family, in a corporation, any organization <laughs> uh -huh. is going to have, have its politics. But the whole point of this federalist system, this whole point was to make sure that politics wouldn't matter so much in America, that it wasn't that the central organizing principle of the new American colonies was not the U.S. federal government. Mm hmm. And that, that's where we failed. When you say there used to be three branches of government, well, in the 20th century, the executive branch wildly overtook the other two, uh -huh. wildly. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where we are now. We're not even the president mm -hmm. is so powerful, but rather these permanent bureaucratic administrative agencies, 90% of, of which don't change as administrations come and go, the vast majority of whom are, are very well protected by federal unions, very mm -hmm. well paid, been working from home in their jammies throughout COVID, I might add. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th that's the real government. That mm -hmm. is, when we talk about the government, that's really who it is. It's not the congressman or congresswoman you send up there. It's not even Clarence Thomas or, or uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The, the, when we say the government, we really mostly mean the federal administrative agency. So that's where the growth and the entrenchment and the real usurpation of that constitutional balance has occurred. Yeah, the deep state, uh, which Mr. Trump 
talked about the deep state now uh, was laughed at. But then we had um, Senator Schumer talking about uh, the uh, the CIA has six ways of Sunday to get him back. He told Mr. Trump, you better shut your <laughs> mouth. You better shut up, buddy, and, uh, or the CIA is going to get you. And somebody certainly got him. There's no doubt about that. But, um, well, Jeff, we're just about out of time here. And I noticed there's so many good things that uh, there was one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, Twitter's in the news these days. I see that you just had a podcast. I believe you interviewed the economist at the Mises Institute, Robert Murphy, uh, about um, bad, the bad economics of Twitter. Um, did, did you see any hope that Twitter – uh, can I don't think save us is too strong a word, but can actually moderate huh. things maybe? Well, I certainly see some hope that it could be a, a content neutral and fair and unbiased platform. I'm not so sure it can make money <laughs> while doing that. So, yeah. uh, but that's, that's uh, fortunately not on my dime. That's on poor Mr. Musk. Poor, <laughs> poor Mr. Musk, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jeff, uh, just in closing then, I guess any any quick advice for people other than to go to the Mises Institute and absorb all the good things, that intellectual things that well, are there? Come to Twitter. Find me at Jeff Dice, J-E-F-F-D-E-I-S-T, and send me a message. And, and I'll send you Per Bylan's new book, which is a short primer on everything you need to know about the economy. So uh, oh, come good. follow me. Oh, well, that maybe should have you back to talk about that sometime. Certainly. What is it? The book is what again? It is called How to Think About the Economy by Per Byland, who's a, a Swede at Oklahoma State University, who is oh. one of our senior fellows. Wonderful. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us today. And uh, we'll have to leave it go with that and get you back another day sometime. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this uh, week. Next week, we're going to be back. Uh, Keith Weiner is going to be with me, Monetary Metals, and also Dr. Quentin Henning will be here to talk about Irving Resources. It's one of my favorite exploration stocks. The company is uh, finding a lot of gold in uh, Japan. Uh, a very unique story, and Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me as well as Keith Weiner next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.